this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Welcome from the University of Michigan. My name is Candace Jones, and I have the distinct honor this morning of speaking with Dr. Robert Bartlett in his lab here in Ann Arbor to discuss the history of extracorporeal life support. Thank you for joining us this morning. Dr. Bartlett, for those less familiar, can you speak about what ECMO is, the components and tenets of its use? ECMO is an abbreviation, an acronym actually, for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is not a very good word. We usually call it extracorporeal life support, or ECLS. It is essentially the use of mechanical devices to support heart or lung function for a long period of time. When we do that for a few hours, that's called cardiopulmonary bypass, and that was the beginning of all type of extracorporeal support. And uh, what ECMO is, or ECLS is, is the use of mechanical devices to take over heart or lung function for longer periods of time, days to weeks, nowadays to months of time. And the reason, of course, is for patients who have failing heart or lung function uh, and allow that patient to survive while we figure out what the cause of the failure is and hopefully fix it. The original heart-lung machine, or the device we use for cardiac surgery today, and that was a device invented by a surgeon named John Gibbon, who was a Philadelphia surgeon who, as a resident, was taking care of a patient who died of a pulmonary embolism. This was in the 20s, and he uh, said there ought to be a way to take blood out of the right side of the circulation, add oxygen, remove CO2, and pump it back into the arterial circulation, and his intent was to treat massive pulmonary embolism. He worked on that for about 20 years of time and uh, developed a, a pump. That was pretty easy. It was a simple roller pump and an artificial lung. That was much more difficult, but the system that he evolved was simply to expose blood to oxygen gas uh, and flow the blood through the oxygen gas, and that worked reasonably well. So controlling all of that, anticoagulating the blood, putting in filters, controlling the temperature, all of that sort of thing became the heart-lung machine, which Gibbon first used to do an open heart operation on a patient in 1953, and uh, that patient recovered and was the first successful patient managed with a heart-lung machine. Of course, that led to the development of all of cardiac surgery, and now we use heart-lung machines in the operating room a million times a year in this country to facilitate operating on the heart. So we take over heart and lung function for a while. The blood comes out of the right atrium and is pumped back into the aorta, so it is cardiopulmonary bypass, or CPB. That's what we call it, and it's, uh, it's become a standard medical procedure around the world, really facilitated the entire field of cardiac surgery. So in the, in the early days of cardiac surgery, uh, this machine was used, and you could use it for about a half an hour in order to fix an atrial septal defect. It was all in children, and, uh, and it worked 
about half the time, and it got a little better, and it worked more frequently. Then people used it a little bit longer to fix a VSD, for example. And by the middle 60s, uh, there were operations devised to treat common congenital anomalies, tetralogy of Fallot, and transposition, and things like that. So that continues today in cardiac surgery courses, standard procedure. One interesting thing about it, it's the only thing we do in medicine where we take blood out of a patient, expose it to air or oxygen, and put it back in the patient, which uh, is now being studied again as a cause of potential damage to the blood and so on. Uh, nonetheless, that's, that's how cardiac surgery developed. Can you talk about the history of ECMO from the 1960s forward, particularly the important events that happened in the 60s and 70s? So in, in the middle 60s, uh, cardiac surgery was just beginning in children. It had been around for about 10 years. Uh, and we all, everyone involved, knew that uh, something about the heart-lung machine was very damaging to the blood. So if you used it for more than an hour, you started to have complications. If you used it for two hours, it was fatal. So that uh, limited the use of that technology for all sorts of things and it was discovered that most of that was related to the direct exposure of blood to oxygen or to any gas but oxygen in that case so so that the reason that you couldn't use cardiopulmonary bypass for more than a couple of hours was all related to the artificial lung in in the late 50s, a plastic material was uh, discovered called polydimethylsiloxane, which is silicone rubber, and it has a unique property of transferring respiratory gases unlike any other kind of plastic. Uh, so the idea evolved, if you could make a thin film of silicone rubber and put blood on one side and oxygen on the other side, Maybe you could oxygenate the blood, remove CO2, and uh, make uh, an artificial lung that included a membrane that eliminated the direct air to blood or oxygen to blood interface. So this, uh, a few labs started investigating this in the middle 60s. There were basically three labs that persisted uh, to develop this to clinical application. One was run by Ted Colobo, who was a uh, surgeon who was based at the National Institute of Health. He never practiced, but he was a wonderful uh, investigator and developed many artificial kidneys and related stuff, and one of the first to develop a membrane lung using silicone rubber. Another was a surgeon named Don Hill in San Francisco, who at Pacific Medical Center with his colleagues developed silicone rubber type of membrane lungs. And the third was um, our little group at the Brigham Hospital in Boston, where uh, myself and an engineer named Phil Drinker from MIT set out to develop membrane lungs. There were several other labs working on this, but none of them got as far as clinical trials. So, so those three labs are uh, the fountainhead of what became known as ECMO uh, later on. 
the uh, research that we were doing at the Brigham resulted in the ability to maintain animals on a heart-lung machine variant for days at a time, which is pretty exciting stuff in 67, 68. Colbo was doing the same, Don Hill was doing the same, and so the this uh, technology uh, got to acquire the name extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, hence ECMO, and of course it's much more than that, it's full cardiopulmonary bypass, but that name has persisted. So this, that's the history of ECMO. It's how we got to that particular technology. So uh, through the 60s, animal research was going on with this this technique to determine if you could maintain extracorporeal circulation for days at a time. That all led to the first clinical trials and the, the first successful application of this technology was in 1971. It was in Santa Barbara, California. A patient uh, there had been involved in a motorcycle accident, had a broken femur and a lot of other injuries, ruptured aorta, recovered from all of that, and the next day was in profound respiratory failure. Uh, his surgeon, a guy named Tom O'Brien, uh, actually gave me a call, said, are, we, are, are you working on that artificial lung thing? We said, well, we are, but we, we're not ready for clinical trials. Let's call Don Hill. So we did, and Don Hill came down from San Francisco with his engineer, a guy named Maury Bramson, and his perfusionist, Angelo Iatrides, and uh, put together their membrane oxygenator. It took about six hours to assemble it and uh, hooked up this patient. And, uh, of course, the patient had been in severe respiratory failure, suddenly was well oxygenated, CO2 was removed, and uh, over a fairly short time, just a couple of days, he actually recovered, came off, and eventually survived. So that was the first successful ECMO patient. Uh, the next year, uh, in Al Gazaniga and I, a, another resident from the Brigham days, uh, were working together at a brand new medical school, University of California at Irvine, and we were running surgery and the ER and all sorts of things in that little hospital, uh, and we were doing the cardiac surgery. So we did a uh, mustard operation for transposition on a little three-year-old uh, and it went well, but postoperatively he was in profound low output syndrome. It used to be quite frequent in those days after pediatric cases. So we uh, took our equipment from the lab and we brought it over to the hospital, cleaned it off, and hooked up this little boy in the veno arterial mode using techniques that we had developed in the laboratory uh, and uh, supported him very well. And of course, uh, as soon as he was on support, his acidosis cleared, his perfusion got better, his cardiac function got better in a day. So after a couple of days on what came to be known as ECMO, he recovered. That was the first cardiac support case. Other groups around the country started looking at this. There were a few other occasional survivors, almost all children. And in 1975, the neonatologists at our hospital in Orange County asked us to see a newborn 
baby, a full-term baby, a little girl who was profoundly hypoxic from meconium aspiration and, as it turned out, from a condition called persistent fetal circulation. Uh, and they all thought she was going to die. We thought she was going to die. Would you like to try your machine again? And we had tried this before on a couple of newborns without success. Uh, but but we hooked up that little girl. And the quick summary is that she recovered after seven days of support. Uh, and that was the first neonatal ECMO survivor. That turned out to be an important case because uh, there was a lot of interest in this ECMO technology, but it really didn't work well at all for any application except for newborn infants with severe respiratory failure, where it worked remarkably well. So we then went on to develop that more in the laboratory. We studied it in our patients, and uh, by the time we had treated about 40 newborn patients with something like 80 or 90 percent survival, we thought this is pretty exciting stuff. At that time we moved the whole project here to the University of Michigan where it has been since that time and established a, a program to study the treatment of newborn infants in that case and cardiac failure babies with this uh, technology. Uh, we thought it worked quite well but the neonatology world thought we were crazy. Uh, could you imagine there are surgeons there in, in Michigan who are putting our babies on this crazy machine and they just don't know how to take care of babies and so on. So it was really hard to get those initial papers published. They're all in the thoracic surgery literature, in fact, because the uh, pediatric journals didn't want anyone to know this was actually going on. Uh, but what, but uh, several neonatologists, young neonatologists, who realized that some babies died in their units, wanted to come and learn how to do it. So we set up some courses. People came here from a few places, but these were neonatologists. Learned how to do it. We taught them how to do it, how to cannulate. Some were surgeons, some were neonatologists, and, and they corroborated the results, had very similar results with 90% survival rate in the babies at, at that time. So we ran a series of courses. This gradually grew over time by we, uh, the only thing we asked of the people that we trained to do this was that they let us know how they're doing, keep a record of their cases and let us know so we could compile a registry of all the cases that had been treated. So we did that and by 1986 there were about 700 of these newborn cases with different diagnoses and different ages and so on. Uh, so we uh, published that and that turned out to be quite important because if you did five or ten or even fifty cases in an individual center, no one th took it seriously. But with hundreds of cases around the country from twelve different ICUs, uh, people said, well, we, we better learn about this. So uh, the technology grew from that point we uh, established a consortium of all the centers that were using this technology in 1989. That, that is the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, or ELSO, which is based here in Ann Arbor and maintains the registry, which is now up to about 85,000 cases, and uh, publishes the guidelines how to do it and 
how to train people and establish the whole specialty of ECMO technical specialists, nurses, perfusionists, or respiratory therapists who learn how to manage this technology at the bedside. Uh, so uh, the, the uh, technique grew rapidly and now is practiced around the world. There, there are 600 member centers of ELSO uh, around the world and thousands of individual members who belong to this organization, all people who are devoted to doing and studying prolonged extracorporeal life support. We started treating other types of patients, older children with respiratory failure, adults with respiratory failure, adults with cardiac failure uh, in the late 80s and 90s. And that gradually grew over time, but rather slowly because it was hard to do. Uh, you, you couldn't buy an ECMO machine, you had to buy the various components, put them together in your basement somewhere and hook them up to patients and uh, it was uh, reasonably well standardized because we had taught everyone how to do it but uh, it, the practice was quite different in different places. It all changed in 2009. Two things happened in that year. One was that there was a worldwide pandemic of flu, which happened to be a flu virus that had not been around for about 40 years, the H1N1 flu virus, or commonly called the swine flu in that year. And uh, they, as always happens, the flu happens in winter. Winter occurs earlier in the southern hemisphere, so in Australia and New Zealand, the first of the of the H1N1 flu epidemic hit there, and because it hadn't been around for a long time, no one was immune to it, so it was very contagious. A lot of people got it. A few people got ponderously ill and died of respiratory failure, and in Australia and New Zealand, they had some ECMO systems. They hooked up the flu patients, and they did remarkably well. It turned out about 80% survived severe respiratory failure uh, in, in, in New Zealand, Australia. So they reported this quite promptly to the rest of the world saying this virus is coming, here's the only thing that we could do that was useful, but in fact it was. So the, all the rest of us in the northern hemisphere dusted off ECMO machines and uh, hooked them up and had similar results. So, so all the cardiac surgeons, the intensivists, the critical care people, the pulmonologists around the world who thought this was mostly nonsense uh, realized that at least in that one particular disease it uh, had some value. At the same time, three different companies in Germany set out to build an ECMO machine, the first time any company had done that. And the most uh, prominent of those is a company called McKay, who built membrane oxygenators and pumps and heat exchangers and the entire system. So now you could get an ECMO machine and in fact it was much simpler, much safer, much more useful than all the things that we had used in the past. So that led to a totally different management approach because the patient could be hooked up to the McKay device, for example, for a month of time and have few complications and recover. 
prior to that, we used to just quit if the patient was not better after 10 days, 14 days, something like that. Uh, so uh, that brought us to the current era of ECMO in which we use devices that are intended for that specific procedure, can be used safely for weeks or months at a time. Uh, the most recent longest case was 600 days on ECMO with recovery at the end of it in a child. Uh, so we're just learning about this, using this technology and what the ultimate applications will be. What we're learning is that severe lung injury, which we formerly thought was irreversible and fatal, uh, recovers after long periods of time, as I say, two years of time. So, uh, so we're, we're just exploring that area. We also have, have learned that once the patient's on the ECMO machine, they don't need to be on a ventilator, they don't need to be intubated, they don't need to be lying in bed paralyzed. So the management of severe respiratory failure has totally changed around the world based on that experience. So whether they're on ECMO or not, we'd like to wake people up, get them off the ventilator, up and around exercising, and the recovery rate is much higher with that. So that's where the technology stands now with regard to respiratory support. Uh, the, uh, the other application, cardiac support, uh, has also grown at a similar pace, and most ECMO now is used for cardiac support for patients who have cardiac failure following a major operation, oftentimes children, or patients who have a myocardial infarction or myocarditis. Uh, but with cardiac support, the technology is easy. It's a different type of vascular access, veno-arterial access. Um, but uh, in those patients, the heart recovers in a few days or it doesn't. It's permanently damaged. So we can learn that early on. And if the heart's not going to recover, then we have learned either to not continue or more likely to go to an implantable device like a VAD and then bridge to transplantation. So the application in cardiac support is now the most widely used application, but it's, it's only for a week or so to decide where to go next with uh, that technology. We also, in the respiratory patients, can bridge to lung transplantation, and we've done that many times, but uh, we uh, have learned that at least in acute lung injury, the lung can recover, may not need transplantation. Question regarding the paucity of ECMO use in adults. How do you think the studies of the 1970s influenced physicians' willingness to adopt the technology, say, prior to 2009? Uh, the clinical research on ECMO for respiratory failure is a really interesting little corner of clinical research because it's the only life support system that's ever been studied in controlled trials. Uh, there's never been a controlled trial of hemodialysis or cardiac surgery for that matter or antibiotics or vasopressor drugs. It's just considered unethical not, not to do what seems to be working. But with ECMO, because it's so complicated and because uh, many critical care docs have said, well, I, I, no one ever dies on my watch. I can take care of these patients. Uh, it, it needed to be studied in some type of controlled fashion. So there have been 11 prospective controlled trials of ECMO that have been conducted. Uh, 
they, and of course in modern times, they all show that there's major survival benefits. So, so that question is pretty well answered. But the, the first trial was done in the 70s, and uh, there were nine centers in the U.S. that participated in a prospective randomized trial using ECMO or not for the new diagnosis of ARDS, when no one was quite sure what that was. Uh, which, ha which has become the prototype example of how not to study a new technology in s severe illness. Everything was done wrong in that trial, and I can say that because I was one of the investigators and I helped design the trial, but it was done by people who didn't know the technology, the, the basic care was, was badly done, there was no standardization of the technique, but that study was published and to this day, pulmonologists say, well, they studied that stuff, which clearly doesn't work. It's a waste of time. Uh, so uh, there have been many studies since then, some in newborns, some in cardiac cases, and so on. But uh, the definitive adult study was done in the United Kingdom in, in uh, the mid-2000s. It's called the CSER trial, conventional versus extracorporeal support and respiratory failure. Uh, in which the patients treated with patients sent to the ECMO center, which there was only one, had about a 65% survival compared to about a 40% survival of patients who were not who were treated in conventional centers. Well done trial, actually. It's addressed the ethical problems and the logistic problems of doing it. The better way to do this kind of a trial is a matched pairs trial, in which you take patients who are managed with some technique, in this case ECMO, compared to similar patients in a large database. And that's been done three other times with ECMO in more recent years. Much better way to do that kind of a trial because it's better science and it's less expensive and gives better, better uh, ways to do the statistics of the study. Thank you, Dr. Bartlett, for your time. And thank you to our TSRA listeners.